Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. ReSound is a remix of found sound, sound bites, docs, music, and other oddities we dig up where no one else is looking. And every once in a while, we like to go crawling around in the archives and pull out something we loved so much the first time, we have to hear it again. Today we're focusing on the work of one producer, Mary Beth Kirshner. Now, Mary Beth actually started her career here at WBEZ, working with Third Coast founder Johanna Zorn on a project called The Question Show a sort of all things considered for and about teenagers. Of course, that was a long time ago, before things like the Internet, digital sound recording, laptop computer, personal computer, or any computer that didn't take up, like, half a building. Oh, the gallons of whiteout we used. I'm not even sure Velcro was around, or Post-it notes. Anyway, Mary Beth is an old friend, and we are thrilled to share her work with you. Coming up, one family's decade-long battle with Alzheimer's disease. But first, her documentary about a man who invites us into his world of blindness. It's called Roof of Thunder. John, hello. Good of you to come. This is very, very kind. It's a pleasure. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Helena. Helena, glad to meet you. John Howe. Hello. Who else is here? I'm Nikki. Hello, Nikki. I'm trying to work out whether it matters to me now that I can't see these people. I wonder if it matters to you, the listener, that you can't see these people. Of course it doesn't. You don't expect to. Who is Helena? Who is Nikki? Sometimes I feel a bit as if I'm always like somebody listening to the radio, as if I'm always slightly removed as if it's not really happening. Sometimes I forget how long I've been blind and then I ask myself how old Tom is. Tom was born more or less the same time that I went blind. I came from the eye hospital virtually to the maternity hospital.
John Hull's first memory of blindness is the sound of his unborn baby's heart beating on a heart monitor. His wife was about to deliver their first child. In there, it was very confusing. I could hear all the things they were doing, swishing of clothes, medical equipment being moved in and out, the coming and going of the staff, my wife's breathing, I was holding her. And there, through it all, there came a baby's cry. That was John Hull's first experience as a blind father and a blind husband in a sighted world, 11 years ago in Birmingham, England. Thomas was Marilyn and John Hull's first child. They now have five, three sons and two daughters. Right, faces. Where's your face going to? Is that your face? Blindness did not come suddenly to John Hull. He had eye troubles most of his life, starting from about the age of 13. When he was a boy growing up in Australia, John remembers coming down to breakfast one morning and remarking to his mother what a misty morning it was. So misty, he said, the fog had come into the kitchen. His mother took him to a doctor who diagnosed cataracts. A subsequent rather dangerous operation left attachments of the retina, which led to loss of sight in his left eye by the age of 17. And after multiple operations over many years, the light slowly faded in the remaining eye until the final eye operation that left him blind at 45. Because I was a sighted person for the first part of my life, I hope for the first half of my life, I will never forget visual memories. If you say to me, mountain, I can't help having a picture in my mind of a of a peaked mountain with white snow on the top of it and a blue sky. That's, that's what the word mountain conjures up for me. But that's only in memory. Now, I had to face the question, was I going to live in memory? Was I going to live in nostalgia? Was I going to forever live as a sighted person who could no longer see and whose mental life was governed by memories of what life had been like when I could see. And gradually, but deliberately, I made a decision not to face the past, but to face the future. I turned myself resolutely towards blindness. Most days, John walks to the office. He works at the University of Birmingham as a dean and professor of religious education. His home is about 15 minutes from campus. On my walk to work, I cross a number of small side roads, but only one major highway. That's the Bristol Road, the A38, which carries the major traffic out of Birmingham down to the southwest. There is a pedestrian crossing, a zebra crossing, and there's a bleep which goes beep, 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 when the pedestrians can cross. It's a strange experience crossing. The traffic is roaring past me. Suddenly the bleeps start. The traffic stops. There's a little island of silence. I pass through that island of silence 
a bit like Moses crossing through the Red Sea. The walls of traffic are dammed up on either side and I know at any moment they'll break over me. The sea flows back, I can hear its roaring as, as I go through the university gates and up onto the campus. Once again, I made it. first unit and this is religious education of the imagination. Tonight we're starting off with story, legend and myth. Next it took three years to perfect a system where he could lecture without notes, pursue his scholarly writing and research and keep up with the administrative tasks of a dean. Right, okay nice. good. Yeah. This feels like a circulation file on its way back home. Yes. What is it? Inside the new education service, that's Warwickshire County Council. Yeah. Um, information for parents, a guide to education in Warwickshire. Yeah. John Hull. You see an end yes. of a process which, of course, has been ongoing for a long time. He is a different person for me. Michael Grimmett is John's closest colleague. They're both religious educators at the University of Birmingham and have known each other 22 years. Coming to the point, let's say, where he would accept that he needed to carry a white stick was an enormous struggle. Coming to the point where he had to accept that he would have to use tape recorders to record reading was an enormous struggle, and he resisted it. And he and I had many a fairly fierce debate about this. Going blind was an essentially very lonely and isolating experience. I felt acutely cut off. I felt as if I was being carried away by a dark surge far into a, another country where nobody, the people closest to me, didn't know what I was going through. And I didn't want them to know. I didn't want them to share any more pain than they had to. On the experience of darkness, it's the 10th of July, 1983. The literature of blindness is often at exaggerated pains to deny that the experience of the blind is of darkness. They For three years after he lost his sight, late at night in the privacy of his office, John talked into a tape machine, compiling an audio cassette diary feeling as if he was traveling over a trackless waste where all the landmarks had gone. His diary entries enabled him to lay down markers each day. The sound is jarred by the recurring clicks of the pause button, turned off and on, off and on, between thoughts. September the 22nd, 1983, I noticed that I was greeting people and saying to them what a nice day it was to find that they were unresponsive or even surprised. And it gradually occurred to me that the concept of a nice day is very largely a visual concept because what a sighted person means by a nice day is a clear blue sky and hence the sun shining. In the blind person's appreciation of weather, wind takes the place of sun. To a blind person, thunder would always be interesting and exciting because it suddenly gives a sense of space and distance to weather. It puts a roof over his head. The sighted person 
always has a roof over his head in the form of the blue sky or the cloud cover or the stars. But the blind person never has a roof over his head until thunder puts it there. One of the changes that came over my life when I started to keep this, this cassette diary was that up until that point I hadn't really been a blind person. I'd been a sighted person that couldn't see. That's entirely different. What happened to me then was that I began to enter into what you can call deep blindness. Because you can close your eyes. You may close your eyes now and you think, oh, well, you know, that's what John Hull sees the world like, the closed eyes, it's blind. But it's not like that, because behind those closed eyes, you still have a sighted person's brain, and your brain is full of all those images of the world, the car, the room in which you are now. What's it like not to have those images? What's it like to go into deep blindness, beyond all, all visual imagery altogether? At first, I realised after a while that the people in my life fell into two categories. There were those who had faces and those who didn't have faces. The ones that didn't have faces were the people I got to know since I lost my sight. There was simply no visual image, just a name, and all the memory of the things we'd done together, but no picture. And at that time, I was in a defiant mood and I said to myself, well, OK, those pictures are fading and some people never did have pictures, but I will take the pictures of Marilyn and I will nail those pictures in some deep place in my heart and I will never forget them. And I would try to remember photographs of, of Marilyn. Easier to remember a photograph somehow than a, a particular moment. And I would try to remember these photographs and I would put them down there, like in storage, forever, as if nobody would ever take those away. But the dark tides of blindness flowed on remorselessly and the months went by, the years went by, and those photographs got all old and I just got sick of referring to them and I simply abandoned them. September the 22nd, 1983, on smiles. Nearly every time I smile, I'm conscious of smiling. I mean, I'm conscious of the muscular and facial movement, even one might say the effort of smiling. I think the reason for that is that one doesn't receive any reinforcement for smiling. There is no returning smile for smile. There's no sort of being dazzled by a flashing smile. There's no seeing somebody's face break into beauty and friendliness in a smile. One never gets anything for one's own smiles. One never knows if they're received or not. There's never an answering smile. One is sending off dead letters. Smiling is irrelevant. Consequently, I can feel myself stopping smiling. Or I think I can. I must ask someone close to me whether this is true or not. I mean, the fact that you can't look at one another, that to me is the most important implication of his loss of sight. Um, you know, that, I mean, I can't look into his eyes and be seen 
I can't be seen, full stop. I mean, that is... Uh, that's a that that is a loss that I don't think one ever completely comes to terms with because after all you know looking at, at anyone that even I don't know very well I'm immediately seen and understood in that way now although I feel we have a very rich relationship and I don't think as a relationship it would have been any better if he hadn't lost his sight because of course it's adjusted in all kinds of other ways and evolved you know as relationships do. But I do miss that. The Lord our God, King of the universe, to give us bread to the world. Cheers. Cheers. Of course, I'm in an area of great sorrow, really, is that he has never seen our children. But, of course, one always has to balance against that. But, you know, the fact that he knows them so well in so many other ways. Spill me. K-N-E-E. Feet. F-E-E-T. Teeth. T-E-E-T-H. Good. The littlest children take great pride in leading John by the hand. When walking six-year-old Gabby to school, John still has to be careful and carry his cane in the other hand because, well, Gabby still sometimes steers him into lampposts or trees while distracted by conversation or passing cars. Tweed. T W E E D. Sheep. S H E E P. What's the plural of sheep? What does that mean? Eh? What does that mean? Uh, what do you say when there's more than one sheep? Flock. With the older kids, like any father, John helps them with their reading and their piano lessons. John tells a story of building a tower of blocks a couple of years ago with his daughter, Lizzie. Not the ideal sort of play for a blind father. They were taking turns adding blocks. And at one point when the tower was quite high, John accidentally knocked it over. He said, sorry, Lizzie, I've ruined it. To which she replied, that's all right, Daddy, you didn't do it. Your hand did. Right, you jump up and hop into your bed now. What happens if I put my hand over your eyes? I can't see. Can you see now? Yeah. Now? No. Now? Yeah. Now? (laughs) (laughs) I thought I'd play this little bedtime game with him tonight. What happens if if I put my hand over your mouth? Can you talk? Yeah. Can you what? Can you talk? (laughs) Yeah. I'll put my hand over your eyes again. Can you see? No. Put your hand over my eyes. Can I see? No. Take your hand away. Can I see? Yeah. Can I? Yep. Put your hand over my eyes. Over my eyes. Can I see? No. Take your hand away. Can I see now? Yeah. Right. (laughs) You are a funny little fellow, aren't you? Why didn't I just tell him that I couldn't see? 
Did I mislead him a bit when I said right at the end there? I don't think so. Discovering that I am blind is something that he cannot be told. The words won't mean a lot. And it seems to me it's better if he gradually works it out for himself. September the 9th, 1983, on the experience of hearing rain falling. This evening, I came out the front door of the house at nine o'clock on my way into the office, and it was raining. I stood for a few minutes, lost in the beauty of it. Rain brings out the contours of what's around you, in that it introduces a continuous blanket of differentiated and specialised sound, uninterrupted, which fills the whole of the audible environment. So you hear the rain pattering on the roof above you, dripping down the walls to your left and right, splashing out of the drain pipe to a sightless person coming out the front door and hearing this must be rather equivalent to the feeling a person with sight has when he draws open the curtains and looks out of a window. Looking out the window suddenly gives depth, detail and contour to the environment. So it is with the blind person coming out of his house and into the rain. If only there could be something equivalent to rain falling inside, then the whole of a room would take on shape and dimension. John is never short of words and never will be. And that's why he has the ability not only to communicate his blindness, but linking with this natural, reflective, analytic nature to interpret blindness. I mean, he's not, to me, a blind man. He's a man with remarkable insight and sight. And the blindness is just a fact of life, which I take as a normal feature of our relationship. <laughs> Do you remember we went to that beach on July no, the 4th? Coney Island. That was amazing. Was it July the 4th? Yeah. It was July the 4th. Yeah. That's why all the crackers were going yeah. off. You know, I know how not to make him feel overprotected... I know how to see him through a door, get on an aeroplane. I wouldn't remove anything that was stuck on his beard after he'd eaten his spaghetti bolognese. That's why I say I don't think about it, because I've gone beyond that stage. We were so hungry. As soon as he'd gone, we got up. We did. We, we had this enormous meal. We had it served in the hotel room, yes. didn't we? Yes. <laughs> John doesn't like to accept any limitation. But you see, those limitations have become transformed into ways of extending himself. This uh, cathedral in Coventry is like a large rectangular box. Before John went blind, he and Marilyn used to enjoy visiting old cathedrals. 
But after, he found them quite dull. The beauty and power of their architecture was gone. After returning home from one particular trip to Coventry Cathedral, a family friend asked him about their visit. He said it was boring. You know, she said, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. Well, John found a way by developing touch and hearing centers in 15 cathedrals all over England. Each cathedral has its own acoustic fingerprint, like this chapel in Coventry, which when combined with touch, he says, is like turning on the lights. If we make contact with the glass perimeter of this room, we'll notice the way that, as we move away from the centre... There we are. And these are these flanges, metal, like metal wings, aren't they? Coming right into the body. I'm right in the... I'm standing right up inside these metal wings now with one on either side of me. Behind me is the glass window looking out upon the city of Coventry. And I'm coming back, leaving the window, coming back into the centre again. One time I was in Montreal, in the old cathedral. I think it must have been 1984, I was on a lecture tour of Canada. The service was in French, I couldn't understand a word of it, but it seemed to be terribly vivid, somehow, as if every word was packed with meaning. The organ was fantastic, sublime. It filled the place. And suddenly I had this image of God approaching me. He was about to leave me, going about his business in the galaxies, business far more important than mine, business I could hardly comprehend. But he paused and threw a dark cloak over me. And just as he was about to speed off, paused and looked back at me, kind of hesitating, as if not quite sure what to do. And I can remember saying, go on, go on, off you go. I'll be okay. Don't bother about me. You get on and do your stuff. I'll be fine. And off he went and left me there. Blindness is like a huge vacuum cleaner that comes down over your life and just sucks everything out. It gives you a sense of priorities. It simplifies your life immeasurably. It, it is painful in the sense of being stripped, but it is an enormous simplification. And in that simplicity, I believe that I have learned certain things that I would not have learned otherwise. And I suppose what I came to realise was that blindness itself is not the gift. Blindness is the wrapping. The gift is deeper. It comes wrapped up in blindness. The thing is to realise that blindness is only the wrapping. The thing is to learn how to unwrap blindness and seize the gift. 
The gift is the vocation of blindness. The gift is what you do with blindness. The gift is how to learn to to wield blindness in the interests of your values. The, the gift is to learn how to make blindness sharpen up your life into a simplified point of, of concentration. I come to think of blindness as like a sword. It is as sharp as a sword, but it's got no handle. You have to hold it by the sharp end. It cuts your hands, but when you wield it, it offers your life a tremendous singleness of concentration. And I think that I have learnt that through blindness. I must have been a very slow learner, that it needed blindness to teach me those things. And I guess I've only half learnt them now and I'm still learning them. Roof of Thunder was produced by Mary Beth Kirshner for Soundprint, a show out of Baltimore, Maryland. Soundprint was one of the earliest programs that featured half-hour documentaries. For Roof of Thunder, Marybeth spent a week with John Hall and his family and sifted through hours of his private audio diaries. Marybeth told us that in addition to the time she spent with him, some of the remarkable intimacy that was achieved in the documentary was created by the recording techniques that evolved during their time together. But the interesting part of the process, which I tried with him and I've never done it, is I brought two tape recorders and I would record moments with him and then I'd let him listen back in his headphones. Say we'd sit together or I'd kind of hide at the end of the bed while he was putting his little boy to sleep. And this little boy, he'd play this game, you know, he'd put his, his hands over his eyes and vice versa. They'd, you know, cover their eyes and it was just very clear that the little boy didn't know his father couldn't see when he took his hands away from his eyes. And I would play those moments back for him in his headphones, and I'd say, you know, talk to me about what happened. And I'd be recording that on a separate tape recorder. And it's just a way of getting inside someone's head yet a layer deeper, rather than just the day after saying, you know, yesterday when you were playing that game with your little boy, and he didn't understand you were blind, and you didn't tell him you were blind, why didn't you do that? Rather than just asking it that way, the experience of playing it for him and then letting him hear it for himself and talk about it was just kind of inside somebody's head in a very profound way. So John Hall gave you all his personal audio diaries. He made them during his transition to blindness. What was it like working with all that tape? I remember feeling then, and I say this even now to, you know, these young um, aspiring reporter producers that I meet that, you know, it's, and it's really started with him that there, there is this enormous burden in a wonderful way that comes with these gifts that people give us. So in his case, I forget, it was just like 45 different hour long tapes that he basically said, it's over there, you can listen to whatever you want. And these are basically his most innermost thoughts. And then here it is, this incredibly difficult transition of losing your sight and letting me, a stranger who called him out of the blue from Washington, D.C., to come over and spend a week with him and his family. And and when they give you that sort of gift, which it really is, access to their lives, then you've got to compress it to whatever it was, 25 minutes. It's an enormous burden and responsibility that you have that goes so far beyond the radio piece. It's about telling these people's lives with integrity 
and a sense of trust, the huge trust that they give you, that you're going to do do right by them and their story when they give you these extraordinary pieces of them. And if you're not kind of haunted by that responsibility, then I don't think you belong in this work. That was independent producer Mary Beth Kirshner. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. Today we're featuring two stories by Mary Beth Kirshner, who's an old friend of Chicago Public Radio. She went on to produce a show called Radio Smithsonian. She also produced numerous nightlines with Robert Krulwich on ABC TV, the music-based NPR program American Roots, and a whole host of other great shows. This next documentary, like the one you just heard, is also an intimate portrayal of a family in transition. While we had Mary Beth on the line, we asked her how she got involved with the Crowder family. This is a family I had met when I was living in Chicago, and I was really doing television. I wasn't doing radio at the time, and I was doing a film on adult daycare. And it was in the earliest days of the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. But it was an adult daycare facility that was taking care of quite a few adults who had Alzheimer's. I mean, this was at a point where you'd hear the word Alzheimer's, and most people would say, what? You know, is that old-timers? disease. They didn't even know what it was. Now it feels like, sadly, it feels like it's everywhere. But back then, even, you know, 20 years ago, and it's almost 20 years ago now, a lot of people really didn't know what it was. And that's not to say I wouldn't have been drawn to this family even now, but I was very intrigued with this couple. She was very low-functioning, and he would bring her one day a week to this adult daycare facility. And the rest of the time, he took care of her himself which seemed so heroic to me. And I was shooting them as part of this other documentary. And then when Soundprint, the documentary series for public radio, was born, so to speak, a couple years later, I remembered them. And I thought, gosh, I wonder if she's still alive. And I wonder how they're doing. And, and we were all just learning how to make documentaries then. There were very few of us in public radio who had ever made a half-hour documentary. And I remember thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great to kind of show something about the passage of time and use some sound from the film if that would work? I remembered it was very, very powerful tape and to see if he would let me go back and tell more. And so it began as one sort of project, and I never forgot them, and then kind of continued as radio a few years later. This is Mary Beth Kirshner's A Mind of Her Own. Well, 
there's no answer to this. I used to bring home the check and take out the garbage, and uh, she took care of everything. So it's uh, turn around, I'll take care of her now. That'll just keep going on and on all day. If she's awake, that's the way she makes all the time. And uh, I asked the doctor about it, and uh, she goes through different uh, little things, and he says, that's just part of it, you know. But uh, he just says her mind is slowly shrinking. Ten years ago, Alzheimer's disease turned Bill Crowder's life upside down. It took his wife's mind and left her body. Sylvia Crowder was an active, vibrant woman. Her daughters remember her singing every night as she cooked dinner. And she was articulate, intelligent. She had a master's degree in English. Today, she no longer speaks. In fact, Sylvia hasn't spoken a word to her family in over five years. She only blurts out raspberry sounds like those a child would make. Alzheimer's disease has seemingly left her without a mind of her own, only a body which has slowly deteriorated, too. She cannot feed herself, bathe, or walk without assistance. She requires complete care. In a sense, she's gone, yet she still lives with her husband, Bill, in a tiny house on the south side of Chicago, where he cares for her morning till night as he would an infant. This is not the story of Sylvia Crowder, but of those who grieve her loss. Bill Crowder is an exceptionally private, proud man who seldom, if ever, talks about Sylvia or Alzheimer's. One of his daughters explained, it's like his hand. It's at the end of his arm, but he doesn't talk about it. But he did one Monday morning. You can always look back and notice things that happened. and I'm not going to go about that, back that far, but... Uh, Roughly uh, around 10 years ago, whenever I retired and we moved out of state, uh, she used to drive all the time. She had her own car. And uh, then one day, uh, state police or county police brought her home. She had uh, lost herself in a parking lot and didn't know how to get out. And she asked somebody, and they called the police. So they told me it would get worse, nothing they could do about it, and uh, she started running away all the time. So I had to put bolts on the doors up high, and then uh, that phrase uh, went by. She quieted down a little bit, then she couldn't walk for herself. She wouldn't eat, she'd take one bite, and then uh, she would forget to eat. And, You'd have to feed her. Then it just got so bad that uh, I had to uh, fasten her in the car with a, a restraining around her chest and tied to the back of the seat. And had it embarrassed a lot of people if I went to the post office or the bank and they saw this lady in the car <laughs> strapped to the back of the seat, you know, they created problems and they called the fire department and the police and and then one day, Francis says, let's go over to the club. And uh, we started taking her there. 
Bill and Sylvia sit in their living room side by side in matching easy chairs all day, most days. Bill sits closest to the bay window to watch the neighbors or cars pass by. He and Sylvia are alone most of the time, but two days a week he brings her to a nearby adult daycare center called the club. Adult daycare provides respite for caretakers like Bill, who simply need a day off to buy groceries or play an occasional game of golf. The club has an entire wing devoted to Alzheimer's patients, where Bill's daughter, Frances, is now working. My mom has been a client here for a couple of years now, and I've always had an interest in it. I've always, I've always thought it was something that was way beyond its time. And I've worked for five years for the state of Illinois Department of Mental Health and was burnt out at that. So I thought, well, if they could use some help here, I had the background, you know, to, to be able to cope with it. It takes a certain kind of person. So you're here when your mom is here? Yeah, but the first couple of hours uh, that I'm here, she's here. She goes home at 4. I begin at 2. So the majority of her day, I'm not here. Um, but, yeah, I do get two hours with her. Yeah, that over that time. Yeah, yeah, nice. yeah, that's nice. Probably nice for your dad to, to know. That I'm here, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Sing something we know, for heaven's sake. Okay. Back the phone, my care and Here I go, singing low. My day? Actually, I do nothing. Uh, it's um, just a little routine, and I can't plan it. What do you mean? When do, when do you get up? What do you do? Oh, well, that depends on uh, Ma. She usually wakes up. This morning, she went, woke up at 3.30. I give her a bath, cleaned her up, give her some breakfast, she put her back to bed. And uh, she slept then until uh, a little after 8.30. By that time, I had to give her another shower. And uh, then I washed the dishes. I learned to do that. The maid won't do it no more. And uh, you mop the floor and do the laundry. Sit down, take a break. Look out the window. But other than that, uh, it's very, uh, very quiet. I don't do too much. He, he can't express himself. He can't ask for help. So I think working here for my dad shows him the kind of person that I really am. And hopefully, he will release his hold on my mother to me a little at a time. Um, it's my way. Of, uh, helping him, kind of. Now I just um, do whatever little I can to take care of her physically. And um, I talk to her, and sometimes I get a smile, and sometimes I don't. But she's gone. The day I knew... She was riding in the car with me. We had gone shopping. And one of these uh, airline 
not airline, like a delivery service. We were parked at a red light and an air freight delivery truck went past us. And she looked at the truck and she looked at me and she said, that's an airplane on the street. And she didn't laugh. She was dead serious. And I knew then that the, the connection wasn't being made. She knew that that truck had something to do with an airplane. And then you could just see that all of a sudden she realized, oh, that's not an airplane. She felt that she was losing her mind. She, she, she knew it was coming. She would cry and, and uh, it, was, it was very hard for me. Uh, she was my best friend. Fred, if your mom were no longer alive, do you think you'd want to continue in this? Yeah. Yeah. I want to be involved. Uh, I want to be the, among the first people that hear about uh, results of research. Um, I'm terrified because it's familial. Through me, my family, my children. Um, we'll learn. So that if I end up like my mother, they'll be able to take care of me. So it's kind of a selfish motive, I guess. I wonder sometimes what she's thinking about, you know, but uh, you never know. I played golf with a man a couple of years ago. He lost his wife. She had 11 years before she died. I always remember that. I never see the man anymore. I guess he moved away or something, but uh, I don't run across him. But uh, he said he's uh, 11 years. But I guess sometimes uh, it takes you quicker. I have been told that Alzheimer's, you know, by itself will not kill you quick. If you, but if you get sick and you have it, uh, it's, chances are that you'll. Uh, Pass away quicker. That's the reason last winter I, I was so afraid she'd catch a cold, you know. But uh, if she gets through this one, well, it'll be another year, you know. Right? And she don't believe a word I'm saying. <laughs> That was over two years ago when I first talked with Bill. I called him a couple of months ago to check up on him and to find out if Sylvia was still living. She was. I wanted to interview him again to discuss what life had been like these last two years. It's now been 10 years since Sylvia was first diagnosed, but Bill told me he didn't talk to anyone about Sylvia anymore. He said, people ask me stupid questions. Like what, I asked. Like, how is she? but he agreed to my calling his daughters. I'd videotaped my interview with Bill and Sylvia and brought the tapes along when I went back to see Fran. She likes that, you know. <laughs> she doesn't look much different. 
Do you think anybody thinks she looks any different? Two years later, Fran is in a new job. She left the club after only a few months there to pursue a degree in nursing. She now works in a nursing home. I was awful glad that they came up for the club. And my daughter's found a place for me to take her. For they have their family, you know. I didn't want to bother them. He carries that to an extreme. He, he, he wants to maintain complete independence. And the, the idea of the club came up only because he really wouldn't um, accept our help. We both live real close, but he's, you know, very, just very staunch in his independence. And the only way we could get, get him to accept help was to make it be someone else. Because he needed, you know, he needed to be able to get away. If I went over to the house and said, okay, I'll stay with her, go ahead and play golf, go do your shopping, do whatever you want to do, he'd be gone for half an hour and come back. Because she was his burden, not mine. I think that's the way he viewed it. But by finding the club and having someone that he could actually pay, it still made him feel like he was in control. And none of that changed even after you went to work at the club? No. Mm-mm. I, I guess I'm, I'm like my father in a lot of ways. When I was there, I knew that you know, everybody was being well taken care of because I made sure of it. And yeah, when I left, I, there, there was still that doubt. Today, Bill still assumes almost complete care of Sylvia while keeping her at home most days. Now he takes her to the club three days a week instead of two and has had the option through Catholic Charities of putting her there five days a week but declined the offer. He says he doesn't know what he would do with the extra days off. Knowing that I wouldn't see Bill again, when I got back in touch with Fran, I'd asked to speak to other members of the family. Her daughter, Leanne, who is 21 and the oldest of the grandchildren, agreed to be interviewed with her mom. She has vivid memories of Sylvia before Alzheimer's. I asked her to tell me what she remembered about the beginnings of her grandmother's disease. I don't think I can. Mm -mm. We'll take a breather for a minute, okay? And then we'll come back to it. Well, when did you see the change? When she came back. What was different then? When she first came back, she seemed normal to me. Then she just, I can't. It's real hard for her. Being the oldest, she remembers, you know, most of what grandma used to be. Now you saw her, her eyes fill up with tears and she left the room. But when you see her with her grandmother, she's great. She pitches in, she's a little caretaker just like, just like her grandfather is and just like I am. I think she'll try to compose herself and come back. Lee? Leanne? Come on down. We're going to watch the tape. The crying's okay. Take a deep breath, come down and watch the tape. Leanne came back to watch the tape, but was never able to continue with the interview. She started running away all the time. So I had to put both those doors up high. Then it just got so bad that uh, I had to uh, 
fastener in the car, remember? It's funny what goes through your mind. Um, he took, he went to the bank on a day that she wasn't at the club. And he would lock the car, and she was in her seatbelt. And she, she never attempted to open the door anyway. And he's standing in the line in the bank. And uh, he sees people running toward the lobby door. There's two squad cars and an ambulance. And he realizes that all these people are gathered around his own car. So then he, my dad went flying out there. And evidently a passerby had seen my mom sitting in the car. And he could hear these noises and thought she was having some kind of a seizure and needed, needed help. So my dad very, you know, nonchalantly walked up and said, no, guys, it's, it's okay. You know, this is the way she is, but, but thanks for coming. You know, if we needed you, I'm glad you were here fast. He may just have not told you about it, but I think that was what he meant when he talked about, well, if they don't like it when we go to the bank, too bad. <laughs> but that's, yeah, that's what that was about. In... Different families, people react to it differently. And quite frankly, I've not run across anybody that's run into... There's not been anybody that I've run into that has dealt with it quite as uniquely as my father has. And I think to tell somebody about what my father has done, most people would not even want to hear about it. Nancy, Bill's other daughter, lives near her parents on Chicago's south side with her two children, who are 8 and 12. Bill often babysits her kids. She says her son still remembers his grandmother when she was well, like when she put butter on his leg when it got stuck in his crib. But her daughter has no memory of her being any different than she is today. Nancy asked that we meet alone when her children were away for fear of upsetting them as she talked about their grandparents. As my mother's condition has grown worse, he's kind of slowed down, too. And it's just amazing, because every time you think they can't go down any further, they do. So you can see that it's um, taking a, its toll on him emotionally as well as physically, because um, I think that's probably one of the reasons why he declined to talk to you, is because... Um, there are times when he has a real hard time talking to my sister and myself about it. For most of their lives, Fran and Nancy knew their father as a man who never shopped, wrote a check, never even bought his own shoes. And they weren't very close with their dad. Today, they say he's their best friend. Yet Nancy and Fran admit they aren't especially close, each saying separately and simply, my sister and I are very different. They have different lifestyles, personalities, priorities, they struggle over who's spending enough time with their mother. Yet their bond is their burden. It's the person she is. It's the relationship we have. It's just the way it is. You can't run from it. You can't make it any better. So you just conduct your life and keep the scream quiet in the back of your head. Well, you know, every time I walk into a room and forget why I walked in there, I immediately think, oh, my God, it's happening to me. And I think, I know my sister feels the same way, too. <clears throat> we both seem to think that she has the... What's the word I'm looking for? If either one of us were going to get it, we've decided it would be her and not me. Why? 
because she's so much like my mother. And she has told me of instances where she doesn't know how she's gotten from point A to point B. No recollection. And, um, you know, you just don't know. They say it's not hereditary, but they say it's familial. Initially, when this was diagnosed with my mother, I, I guess we both felt that uh, maybe we shouldn't have had children. Although I don't feel that way now because I feel hopeful that if it affects my sister and myself, hopefully by the time our children were to become elderly, there would definitely be a cure. Well, you make a pact with your sister. You make a pact with your sister because each of us has the same genes. And if she gets it, I kill her, and if I get it, she kills me. <laughs> None of us want to live like my mom. Okay, If I see it coming, if my brain works at all, I'll be gone. Because I don't want, I don't want to go through what she's going through. I don't want my husband to go through what my dad's going through. There, there, there just isn't a day that doesn't go by that you don't feel some grief. And uh, when someone dies, you, you have to face your grief and you deal with it. But it isn't there every single day for years and years and years. But the finality of Alzheimer's is that it's not final. Sylvia just celebrated another birthday, her 76th. Bill jokes about having married an older woman. He celebrated his 76th just four days later. Bill and Sylvia Crowder were married 43 years ago, and he's still counting. He'll never give up. No, he'll never give up. He's just not made that way. There is nothing else he would be doing. You know, there is nothing that he would be doing that taking care of her is taken away from. You know, he's, he's the ultimate responsible person. Um, we would have to snatch her away from him and move to China and leave no forwarding address. And he would spend the rest of his days hunting us down. She is my dad's life. And I'm not saying that that's good for him, because I don't think it is. But he thinks it is. And it's his life. He's not complaining. Well, you do the same thing. I can't, there's no way in the world I can put her anywhere. Even if I wanted to, I can't do it. Maybe for what? Seven, eight months? And anywhere from 18 to $2,200 a month? Who can afford that for a long time? No, uh, I think you could. You make your mind up to it, you'd have to do it. Of course, I don't know. Uh, the cooking is the only thing I really dislike. I'm not a very good cook. 
Mind of Her Own by independent producer Mary Beth Krishner. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival, an independent media arts organization in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. ReSound is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. The Third Coast Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts and sponsorship from Chicago's Navy Pier, American Airlines, and ExploreChicago.org, the city of Chicago's official tourism website. The festival is produced in partnership with the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, and it was founded by Chicago Public Radio. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.